Remember the simple, good old days when every woman who was pregnant and was found to have low hemoglobin was just considered to have iron deficiency anemia. But now we've gotten fancy, as the ACOG has now recommended universal rather than ethnic-based screening for hemoglobinopathies, we are finding some interesting results. In other words, women who we would otherwise simply have considered to have routine, microcytic, hypochromic, regular old iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy are now being identified and correctly diagnosed due to this universal hemoglobinopathy screening. This is a good thing. Patients are being correctly diagnosed as having thalassemia trait carriers. In other words, they have one abnormal gene, whether that's alpha thalassemia carrier or beta thalassemia trait positive, also called beta thalassemia minor. This can cause confusion when a patient is found to have a low hemoglobin value per respective trimester because it's hard to differentiate between a low hemoglobin value that's due to iron deficiency compared to a low hemoglobin value due to defected red blood cell formation based on a CBC alone. On the CBC, both conditions, iron deficiency and things like thalassemia trait, can be microcytic and hypochromic. So, although it is true, it is responsible in the vast majority of cases of low hemoglobin in pregnancy, not all cases are due to iron deficiency anemia alone. And the reverse is true. Just because a patient is found to have a thalassemia trait, either alpha or beta, does not mean that she cannot also have a coexisting iron deficiency anemia. Okay, now if you're thinking, well, what's the big deal there? I mean, either if it's alpha or beta thalassemia trait, meaning just one gene, they're asymptomatic. Why is this an issue? Well, it actually is a real-world clinical conundrum, and I'm going to tell you why. This real-world clinical situation and the idea for this podcast comes from one of our former residents who's now in private practice, Dr. Jimenez. Dr. Jimenez sent me this message, quote, Beta thalassemia carrier in pregnancy third trimester. MFM said don't give iron or blood because of the risk of iron overload. I sent her to hematology. They started her on oral iron. Her 3T hemoglobin is 9.5 and I'm debating about giving IV iron infusion. Hematology told me to follow normal recommendations for delivery. Feel like I need to give her IV iron now before delivery. What to do? Man, isn't that interesting? There's a lot there. So first of all, this physician did the right thing, which was asked for help when it's a confusing situation. But now we have two consultants who don't agree. This physician did exactly what she was supposed to do. That's called doing her due diligence to protect the patient. But hematology said, go ahead and give iron supplementation, even though there's beta thalassemia trait. But MFM said no, because you can get oral iron overload. So who's right here? They have opposing arguments and opposing opinions. Well, we're going to answer that in this episode, and we're going to do a deep dive into thalassemia traits, specifically beta thalassemia trait positive, or what's again called beta thalassemia minor. This whole issue of iron overload is a real issue. So what do you do when they need iron replacement like in pregnancy? It's pretty deep, but there is an answer, and we're going to get to it in this episode. Are you all ready? So let's talk about iron deficiency anemia plus beta thalassemia trait in pregnancy and what to do. 
Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right, podcast family, before we go into the data, as always, you want to stay with us until the end of the episode, because we're going to give you a big clinical pearl after we answer this question of whether these patients can take oral supplementation or not. We're going to give you the big clinical pearl as to how to follow these patients and what to look for. All right. So stay with us until the end as we go over the final clinical pearl for this scenario. It really is remarkable how much we have learned about traditional gynecological and obstetrical things that we once thought we had all figured out. For example, traditionally, we thought that vaginitis happened one pathogen at a time. In other words, having BV excluded all other kinds of vaginal pathogens and you just had BV. Having yeast meant you only had a yeast infection. But a nice review published in 2021 showed that in some patients, mixed vaginitis can occur and it can do so anywhere from 4% up to 30% of the time. No, we're not talking about vaginitis in this episode, but it's the exact same concept here with what we're talking about in this episode. You see, it has long been considered that iron deficiency could not exist at the same time with thalassemia syndromes, and that included thalassemia major as well as thalassemia trait. But that's wrong. Recent studies have shown the occurrence of iron deficiency in patients with beta thalassemia trait. Thalassemia trait and iron deficiency anemia are the most common causes of microcytic hypochromic anemia in pregnant women. Accurate discrimination between these two is a super important issue, and that's because in one case, iron deficiency, iron is absolutely necessary for treatment, while in the other condition, beta-thalassemia trait, iron may potentially be harmful. Do you see why the ACOG has called for a universal screening for hemoglobinopathy? I mean, yes, the one thing is we don't fit as people into discrete little ethnic boxes, so we should do universal screening. That's absolutely true. But deeper than that, more important than that, is that we really need to be diagnosing patients correctly. And we can't call everybody, oh, that's just physiologic anemia of pregnancy or iron deficiency because, yep, it's true, though, it's 70% of anemia in pregnancy is iron deficient. But not all of it. We do need a correct diagnosis. Plus, misdiagnosis of a thalassemia trait could have possible impacts to their offspring if their partner is also a trait carrier. In other words, we don't want to miss a potential homozygous offspring because we never screened for thalassemia trait. Now, as we've already mentioned, it is true, iron deficiency anemia accounts for most cases anywhere from 55 to 70% of anemia in pregnancy, depending on the population studied. However, both alpha and beta thalassemia trait can also cause microcytic hypochromic anemia and are commonly misdiagnosed as iron deficiency. 
Now, we're going to get into diagnosing thalassemias in just a moment because there's two ways to do that, either by hemoglobin electrophoresis or molecular screening, in other words, genetic testing. But the idea is we really should get this done at least once in a patient's lifetime so that we can really figure out if they have a thalassemia condition or if they really are just iron deficient. According to the recommendation from the ACOG, anemia in pregnancy can be diagnosed when the hemoglobin concentration of the pregnant woman is less than 11 grams per deciliter in the first trimester, 10.5 grams per deciliter in the second trimester, and then we're back to 11 grams per deciliter in the third trimester. Meanwhile, according to the guidelines for diagnosis and treatment of iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy, when the plasma ferritin level is below 30 nanograms per ml, early iron depletion is diagnosed and iron supplementation should be performed. All right, so remember, that's two basic things there. The hemoglobin value, which is trimester specific, 11 in the first, 10.5 in the second, and then back to 11 grams per deciliter in the third trimester, and then a serum ferritin level. That's how you know if the patient is iron deficient or not, because a ferritin level of under 30 makes a diagnosis of iron deficiency anemia. We've got to get this right. Remember that iron deficiency anemia was covered in a previous podcast that we did, so you can look that up. But it's not just about, oh, I'm going to fix your hemoglobin because it's low and you risk blood transfusion. Those are all true. Those are all good things. But iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy is linked to real adverse issues. It leads to increased rates of low birth weight preterm delivery, and even higher rates of perinatal mortality. And there's also data that women who have iron deficiency anemia uncorrected in pregnancy, those children go on to have poor neurodevelopmental outcomes. So it's not just about fixing the hemoglobin number. We've got to fix it because it, it just makes a better pregnancy overall. Now that we've talked about iron deficiency anemia, a quick word about thalassemias. Although thalassemias come in two main types, alpha or beta, I want to focus on beta thalassemia, specifically beta thalassemia minor. Remember, that's just when you have the trait, you're actually asymptomatic. And the reason I want to do that is because that was the focus of Dr. Jimenez's question. Plus, patients who have frank thalassemias, in other words, moderate or severe anemia, it's unlikely that we're going to diagnose them in the first time in pregnancy. They typically have been diagnosed earlier on in life because they've required blood transfusions. Globally, about 1.5% of the population, about 80 to 90 million people, remember this is globally, are carriers of beta thalassemia. Podcast family, here's your warning. Here's your basic science review coming up. As a brief recap, in adults, there are three main types of hemoglobin molecules. Hemoglobin A, which on average represents about 96% of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin A2, which is generally under 3%. And then hemoglobin F, which is about 1% out there circulating around in people. Each hemoglobin A molecule consists of four globin chains, two alpha and two beta, each with an associated heme group that can reversibly bind one oxygen molecule. Mutations in the alpha or beta globin genes can cause abnormal varieties of hemoglobin A. These are the hemoglobinopathies, and this obviously includes things like sickle cell, or they can cause a decrease in production of one of the respective globin change. These are the thalassemias. 
Beta thalassemia mutations are most commonly of the non-deletional type, with point mutations in the promoter region of the beta globin gene often found. Mutations which result in a mild or moderate reduction in beta chain production are referred to as beta plus, and those causing a complete absence of beta chain production are called beta zero. Beta thalassemia trait results when a beta plus or a beta zero mutation is paired with a normal beta globin gene. This is generally asymptomatic and shows a mild microcytic hypochromic anemia on the CBC, and this is also similar to alpha thalassemia trait. Remember that having just one abnormal beta globin gene gives you the trait that's called beta thalassemia minor, and this is typically asymptomatic or having very mild anemia, and these patients typically do not require repeat transfusions. All right, podcast family, when we come back, let's get to our original question. Can these patients with dual iron deficiency anemia and beta thalassemia trait, can they use iron supplementation? Who was right, the hematologist or the MFM specialist? Ooh, it's a good discussion. Let's get to that next. So, can these women with dual iron deficiency and beta thalassemia trait, can they use oral iron? I mean, what's the fear here anyway? What's wrong with just giving them iron supplementation? Well, here it is. Patients with beta thalassemia, intermedia, or major, again, those that are more symptomatic, have abnormal hepcidin function. Remember that hepcidin is what allows for iron absorption. Now, to be very basic, the lower the hepcidin, the more iron is drawn up and out from the GI tract for absorption. The higher the hepcidin, the lower the absorption. Okay, so it's in reverse. In traditional iron deficiency anemia, oral supplementation of iron causes an increase in serum hepcidin levels, which actually blocks absorption. That's exactly why taking iron multiple times during a day or even every single day can actually reduce the amount of iron that the patient is getting. Remember that? We covered that in a previous episode, talking about what's the best way to take oral iron for supplementation. Does that make sense? So just remember, the lower the hepcidin, the more the absorption. The higher the hepcidin, the less the absorption. But did you hear what we said there? That's with symptomatic thalassemia. The chance that hepcidin functions in this abnormal way with thalassemia trait is minimal. So again, it really doesn't apply here. So yes, thalassemias in general, both alpha and beta, have an abnormal function of hepcidin. In other words, they have very low levels of hepcidin, which makes them very prone to iron absorption. Think about it this way. If they have alpha or beta thalassemia, their red blood cells are being produced. It's not an iron deficient issue. They just can't make the correct red blood cell. So the body says, hey, something is wrong here. The only thing I can fix is taking in more iron. So let's lower hepcidin so we can bring more iron in. It's a pathological response. Does that make sense? That's why these patients are at theoretical risk of iron overload, not only because they can absorb more from the GI tract, but these patients also get repeated blood transfusions because the way that you treat symptomatic thalassemia is with blood transfusion. You don't treat those, you don't treat those with oral iron because oral iron is isn't necessarily the issue. They can't make the correct red blood cell, so they have to be giving them 
red blood cell. Does that make sense? So all to say that's with symptomatic thalassemias, but it's not really the case. It doesn't really apply to thalassemia trait when you only have one abnormal gene. Remember that ACOG says we should be doing universal hemoglobinopathy screening. And you can do that either with hemoglobin electrophoresis or with genetic screening on a molecular level. We can do that, and that's what's recommended by SMFM and ACOG. And that's why it's important for us to get this diagnosis correct. Because if the patient is found to have a beta thalassemia trait and then is found to have a low hemoglobin level, we just can't write her off as, well, she's a trait, she's asymptomatic, symptomatic. That's what they do. They have mild anemia. She'll be fine. No, no. She can have on top of that iron deficiency. So these patients still require a thorough workup for iron deficiency anemia. That's serum iron. That's serum ferritin. You can do a total iron binding capacity because those numbers will still hold true for iron deficiency, but will still in general look okay with thalassemia trait. I'm going to give you those percentages in just a moment. The short answer is just because you find thalassemia trait on universal screening, don't stop looking for iron deficiency anemia because as we've already stated, uncorrected iron deficiency anemia in pregnancy could lead to some adverse outcomes. Now that we've mentioned ferritin, let's talk about what ferritin levels in general look like for patients who have beta thalassemia minor by itself, okay? Not with concomitant iron deficiency. If a patient has beta thalassemia minor, published data has shown that serum ferritin is normal in about 74% of the cases. In about 13% of the cases, serum ferritin is actually above normal. See, that's why you need to check this because if serum ferritin is above normal, they probably don't need extra iron supplementation. But in about 13% of the cases, that serum ferritin is actually slightly lower, which could imply that they are also a little bit iron deficient. All right. So in 74% of the time, according to the published data, serum ferritin is totally normal. 13% it's above and about 13% it will be low. Also remember that with iron deficiency anemia, total iron binding capacity will be high. So make sure to do a complete set of iron studies if you can't figure out if the anemia in pregnancy is due to the beta thalassemia or a superimposed iron deficiency anemia as well. Those ferritin numbers were published in a 2022 publication with the lead author being Tabasum, and I'll leave that reference in our reference guide online. Now that we're coming to the end of the episode, let's get to the answer. So, can a patient who's found on universal screening to have beta thalassemia minor, meaning they just have the trait, and who also are found to have iron deficiency anemia, can they take iron supplementation? Well, before we get into that one-word answer... Let me tell you this, before 2021, there really wasn't any peer-reviewed data that we could point to to go, look, they've actually showed that this is helpful or not helpful. But 2021 did bring somewhat of an answer. This 2021 publication was in the British Journal of Hematology, and it studied this very issue. It took patients with beta thalassemia minor who also had iron deficiency anemia, and it studied their hepcidin levels and how they responded to oral iron compared to women who just had IDA, iron deficiency anemia by themselves. 
these authors confirm that those patients with beta thalassemia trait, in other words, beta thalassemia minor, who also had iron deficiency anemia, they pretty much had normal iron absorption, just like patients with iron deficiency anemia alone. And they found that ferritin level actually increased to a greater degree than their serum hemoglobin. Well, that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, you can increase the iron storage capacity of the body, but they've got this trait, so they just can't make that much of the normal amount of hemoglobin. So their hemoglobin levels did rise, but not in the same degree of serum ferritin. So all to say they function exactly like you think they would function because the defect isn't necessarily iron deficiency alone. In other words, you can replace the iron deficiency, but you can only do that to a degree. You can increase their ferritin above 30, but because they still have that background of jacked up beta globin genes, there's only so much that they can do. Does that make sense? So let's put this in CHOPPA translation. Hey, if it's IDA by itself, iron deficiency anemia, it's going to work just fine. You're going to increase both their hemoglobin and their ferritin. But if they got a background of beta thalassemia trait, their red blood cells are jacked. So while you can increase their storage and you're going to increase their level of hemoglobin, it only goes to a certain amount because there's, there's only so much that their body can do with their messed up beta globin gene, even though they are trait, they are beta thalassemia minors. That's why you can't correct all of their anemia because they do have that background. They have a baseline of microcytic anemia because they are trait carriers. But you can fix their iron deficiency. I hope that makes sense. And so just to drive it home, yes, oral supplementation seems to be fine and you can correct the iron deficiency anemia, but you cannot correct their anemia from their beta thalassemia minor status. Yep, that's good news. So these authors stated, quote, These findings suggest that in pregnant women with beta thalassemia minor, hepcidin functions normally to maintain iron hemostasis, and iron supplementation is effective and safe, end quote. That's pretty good news. Now, before we end the episode, I am going to answer the question, so who was right, the hematologist or the MFM? And the answer before you go, well, obviously, then it's the hematologist. They're both right. <laughs> and I'm going to explain why in just a moment, okay? But I do want to clarify something so that this is not taken out of context. This applies to thalassemia trait carriers only, not those patients who have existing thalassemia. Those patients who require multiple blood transfusions are at real risk of iron overload. So you do not want to give them oral supplementation. But again, that's not what we're talking about here. Those patients with frank thalassemia who get multiple transfusions need uh, iron chelation therapy. I mean, iron overload is bad. It could be deadly. But that's not what we're talking about with these trait carriers, with these thalassemia minor patients. So as we wrap it up, who was right? And I said it already. They're actually both right. The MFM physician was being ultra conservative by not giving any patient with a thalassemia condition iron. That's okay, but probably it's to the extreme because even though patients with beta thalassemia trait, beta thalassemia minor, can have risk of iron overload should they ever get recurrent blood transfusions, that's not what we're talking about here. Most of these patients are asymptomatic. And that publication from 2021 showed that they have normal response to oral iron. So that's good. And the hematologist is right. The hematologist said, hey, the 
they'll be fine. They got just a trait. They're beta thalassemia minor. Give them iron. They'll be okay. So yes, they are both correct. So I don't want to throw anybody under the bus. But if I really have to be clear, yes, hematology was probably on the more correct side. But of course, as Dr. Jimenez very well exemplified, iron supplementation in a patient with complex anemia like this patient has. That's complex anemia. She's got a th thalassemia minor and then iron deficiency on top of that. It's always a good idea to work in conjunction with your hematologist or your MFM subspecialist. It's always a good idea to do due diligence just as Dr. Jimenez did. It just happened that on this case, those two consultants were on opposing ends of the opinion. But that's okay. The short answer is yes, these patients can absolutely do oral iron supplementation on an every other day basis. But here's the clinical pearl. These patients do require repeat monitoring. They need serum levels of iron, ferritin, and total iron binding capacity because we just want to correct them. We won't, don't want to overcorrect them. And we also have to remember their limitations because we're never going to get rid of their anemia because that's what they do. They've got an abnormal globe, globin chain, and so they can't get a normal hemoglobin level like everybody else. So yes, correct their iron deficiency, but that's why Dr. Jimenez was seeing that, man, they just couldn't get up past that 10 because that may be their baseline. All right. So that's the clinical pearl. Yes, you can supplement. Yes, you need to monitor where they're at and realize that you're not going to make them without anemia because they still have that background because of that jacked up beta globin gene. All right, podcast family, we just covered a real clinical conundrum that we're going to see more and more of here if we follow the ACOG guidance to do uniform hemoglobinopathy screening, whether that's by hemoglobin electrophoresis or with a molecular level like a genetic test. Because if you find the trait, it doesn't mean that they cannot have iron deficiency anemia on top of that, and it's okay to correct them. You just have to do it cautiously and up to a limit. Remember, you'll never be able to correct them completely because that's what they do. By definition, they have microcytic anemia because of their thalassemia minor status. Dr. Jimenez, I hope that podcast helped. Anyway, you're doing a great job. We're proud of you. And as always, we're thankful that you're part of our podcast community. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls. And one last thing, regarding the specific question about IV iron use in this patient, while we realize that she may never be able to escape her anemia because of the thalassemia minor condition, IV iron is likely not necessary. If, however, it is chosen, then it's one or the other. In other words, don't do oral supplementation and IV iron, just do the IV iron and use the lowest administration of iron as possible. So don't do the uh, 500 milligrams, don't do 250. I'd actually start much lower than that because you can always work up to the, the amount necessary, but it's hard to take it away once it's in the body, all right? So IV iron is probably not necessary if oral iron supplementation is already in use because you're not going to be able to get rid of this patient's anemia because she's already behind the ball, so to speak, because of the thalassemia minor condition.